The last time we were together in the Gospel of John, we were talking about the first disciples that were called by Jesus. And we were in the middle of the narrative here in chapter 1, where John the Baptist is out there preaching and doing his marvelous ministry as the forerunner of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And out there you have John preaching and then these different guys coming to Christ. And it all takes place over a period of about four days. John is out there, and as you come through the narrative on the first day that we encounter him, there is a delegation sent from the Sanhedrin, and they are wanting really to check him out, spy him out, see what he's up to out there. The second day, you have Jesus coming back from his time of temptation in the wilderness, and as he comes back on the scene, he sort of passes by, and John validates him as the Savior of the world, as the Lamb of God. And then the third day, Jesus comes back by again, and John repeats his announcement as the Lamb of God. And at that point in time, John and Andrew turn to follow Jesus and turn away from John and his ministry once and for all to go and follow the fulfillment. On the fourth day in the narrative, Philip is added. In the meantime, Peter has been added also. On the fourth day, Philip is added, and he then goes and brings Nathaniel. So in this passage before us, we have Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and not named, but there is John. We've already talked about in detail Andrew and his initial coming to follow Jesus Christ. We've talked about Peter. This time we're going to talk about Nathaniel, and then next time we'll go on talk about Philip, next time we'll go on and talk about Nathaniel. So the day following, we read in John 1.43, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Evidently, John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and James, John's brother, evidently they were all friends. Some of them were even relatives. And so it's interesting to note that as the Lord gathers together his initial team, that at the very head of the team are friends and relatives, which is an interesting thought as you look at the group of leaders that the Lord raised up as he launched his public ministry and who the individuals were that were working so closely with him. So the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now there are basically three things I want to draw out of these two verses that we're going to look at. There are a couple of things here, three things actually I want to draw out for you to think about. And one is our Lord's method in drawing men unto himself. I just love to think about and observe in the Bible the way Jesus draws men into a relationship with him. Here we read, the following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and he found Philip. Now that is in fact different than what has occurred to this point. Let me see if I can help you move through this. See, Jesus reveals himself, as we have seen so far in this passage, to those who are deliberately seeking him. Jesus loves to do that. He loves to find people that are coming earnestly seeking after him and reveal himself to them. And as you think about that, realize this. Some people begin to think about Jesus Christ and begin to move in towards seeking Him as soon as they hear about Him. 
as soon as they hear about him, there's something inside that says, I want to learn more about this Jesus. I want to study more about him. So some begin to see Christ as soon as they hear about him, and he loves to deliberately reveal himself to those that are deliberately seeking him. And so you see how the two work together. And actually, we have already seen this, but I want to point it out to you sort of by way of review. If you look at chapter 1 here in verse 35, it says again, The next day, John stood with two of his disciples. That was the second day. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. So remember, here they are walking along down the road. They're just sort of walking along behind Jesus. Jesus is walking ahead of them, and he senses them behind him. And he turns, the Bible says, Jesus turned here in verse 38. He turned and seeing them following. He stood and he looked at them for a while, just watching them. And then as they came up to him, he said, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi. We're seeking the teacher. We want to be taught, which is to say teacher. And they said, where are you staying? And they were basically saying, we'll tell you what we're seeking. It's just simply you. We want you. We want to know you. And so they said, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. When they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day, that was about the 10th hour. So Jesus says, come and see. He takes him to the place that he was staying, probably some camp by the river right there, by the River Jordan, probably not too far away. And he spends the afternoon and into the evening revealing himself to them, talking to them about who he is. And this is what the Lord loves to do. You make an effort to move in on him and he will reveal himself to you. Then we go on to see, in verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. And he found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas. And so they tell Peter. And Peter says, I'd like to know this too. I'd like to know him too. So they bring him into Jesus. And Jesus there begins to study Peter and starts telling him things about him. Your name is such and such. It really stands for this character about your life. But I want you to know things are going to change. Things are going to get better. Things are going to get marvelous. You will become a rock in my movement. And he prophesies to him and in the process commits himself to transforming Peter's life. So here are these men. They are deliberately seeking Christ. That's why they were out there listening to the preaching of John the Baptist. And when Peter hears, he deliberately goes to meet Christ. And Jesus loves to reveal himself to people like that. Now that is not to say that everyone who responds and begins to seek the Lord immediately upon hearing about Jesus comes to know him immediately. Some people have to work through the issues. Some people will begin immediately to read the Bible begin immediately to read books that others recommend. Someone says, read Born Again by Billy Graham. Oh, okay, how to be born again. But I'm interested also in angels. Read his book on angels. So here's an individual begins to read and to study, but they don't come to know Christ right away. They're interested. They study. They come to church. They sit. They listen. Some people listen to hundreds of sermons, and they're still sort of filtering things through. Well, I wonder if he really will take me just by grace alone. 
maybe there is something in here that I haven't heard about yet that says I have to do my part. And what if I don't do my part and I think it is by grace alone? Maybe he won't do his part and he won't save me and I'll mess it all up and I'll think I'm alright. I won't be alright so maybe I shouldn't come yet. And they get caught in that process. Some for years. But yet, from the time they begin to hear of Christ, they begin to seek after him. And then God has from there his perfect timing when the work has been done in the heart. I've told you the story of Charles Spurgeon's conversion before and I was wondering if I should share it tonight. I wanted to but was wondering. I hate to repeat stories but occasionally if they're good I like to. And I was up here listening to the last song thinking even then I wonder if I should share the story of Spurgeon's conversion and then the band began to play White as Snow and I thought surely this is a sign from heaven. I must share the story that took place on a snowy winter day with Charles Spurgeon. One Sunday morning, January 6, 1850, when he was 15 years old, Charles Spurgeon started off on his long walk to church. A heavy snowfall prevented him from reaching the church with his mo- which his mother had recommended, and he turned into a primitive, that's what it was called, primitive Methodist chapel in Colchester. The preacher himself was not able to show up at church that day because he had been snowed in. And a layman there at the church who made no claims to any kind of education at all preached extemporaneously on Isaiah 45.22 and there were 15 people in attendance in church that day, one of whom was the young 15-year-old Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon by this time had been seeking after the things of Jesus Christ already for years even though he was 15 years old. And yet he was not able to be settled on how a man actually passed from death into life. And he was afraid that he was lost and that even though he knew about Jesus, he would somehow end up eternally lost. And so it was in that condition after a number of years of reading about Christ and theology that he came into this little church with 15 people and this uneducated preacher on that snowy morning, January 6, 1850. The text in Isaiah 45.22 was, Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Spurgeon is commenting, he says, The man up there preaching was an ignorant man. He could not say much. And he was obliged to keep to his text because he didn't know anything. And I was thanking God for that. He began, look, that is not a hard word. A fool can do that. It does not need a wise man to look. A child can do that. How simple. Then he went on, look unto me. Do not look to yourselves, but to Christ. And then he went on in his own simple way and put it thus. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood for you. Look unto me, I am scourged and spit upon. Look unto me, I am nailed to the cross, I die, I am buried, I rise and ascend, I am pleading before the Father's throne, and I am doing all this for you, the little man said. Stooping down, he looked under the gallery where I was sitting, and he said, Young man, you are very miserable looking today. So I was, but I had not been accustomed to being addressed in that way in public. Ah, said he, and you will always be miserable if you do not do as my text tells you, that is, look unto Christ. And then he called out with all his might, Young man, look in God's name, look and look now. I did look. Blessed be God. I know I looked then and there, and he who but that minute before had been near despair 
suddenly had all the fullness of joy and hope sweeping through his heart. And that instant, he who was ready to destroy himself could have stood up then and there and sang as loud as the Methodists did together. He goes on to say, Spurgeon commenting, said, I was years and years upon the brink of hell. By that I mean in my own feeling. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing that I was lost. But, oh, the blessed gospel of God and God's grace came to me. And I, who was but a minute before as wretched as a soul could be, could have danced for the very merriment of my heart. And as the snow fell on my road home from that little house of prayer, that little church, I thought every snowflake talked with me and told of the pardon I had found. For now I was white as the driven snow through the grace of God that had saved me as I looked to Jesus. You see, the Lord loves to reveal himself to those who are deliberately seeking him. And I want to encourage you, as you see John and Andrew and Peter and Jesus and Charles Spurgeon, if you have been reading about Jesus, if you have been coming to church, if you've been studying the Bible to learn about Jesus, but you haven't yet closed in on a relationship with him, I want to tell you, today's the day to do it. Today is the day to believe that he loves to deliberately reveal himself to those that are deliberately seeking him. And don't let another day go by. Open your heart and tell the Lord of the feeble faith that you have in Him and of your desire to know Him and of your desire to be cleansed of your sins and let Him rush in and do His saving work and send you from this place a new person, wide and clean as the driven snow. Some begin to seek Christ as soon as they hear about Him and Jesus loves to meet them in their seeking. Some, however, will not seek Christ until they try every other path some of you know about that. Some of you, I think, have probably been discouraged when you have a loved one in your life and you've shared the gospel with them, told them a very clear presentation of how to come to know Jesus. And they also know of the radical transformation in your own life because they knew you before you were saved. They've seen the transformation as living proof. They've heard the gospel presented in a sound and full way, and yet no desire not even the slightest turning of the heart toward Christ. And this has discouraged you, right? Some of you have seen this and said, what more can be done? Oh God, I don't, I don't know. Maybe they'll never be saved. In fact, for some of you, the years have been rolling by and you're watching this loved one and you've been getting discouraged. Well, please be encouraged by this. Some are not going to seek Christ until they have tried every other path that is out there to see if they can come into a relationship with God by some other means than Christ. And you know what the crux of the issue is so often? The crux of the issue is sin. They hear about Christ. Oh, they want to hear about His love and His peace and His joy and the light and all of that, the rest and the fulfillment. But the one thing that really gets them is they do not want to turn from their sin. They don't want anybody, including the God of the universe, coming and ordering them about and how they're going to live their life. So what they do is they take in all the gospel, mm-hmm, fine, but I just don't like that part about sin. And beside, I have heard that there are many paths to God. I'm going to go try a few of them. You found God in your own way. Now you needed that, and you were sort of hopeless anyhow. Well, I'm not hopeless like that. So off they go in a long, empty, hopeless search. 
And they try all these different so-called paths to God, only to surface years later. More empty, more full of anxiety, deeper in guilt, and far more corrupted now by the sin that has gripped them in bondage all the way along. And now they come back, so often many of them desperately seeking a savior for their sin. And now they're ready for Jesus. And they've tried Muhammad, and they've tried Buddha, and they've tried Confucius, and they've tried all the different paths in different ways, and the Joseph Smiths, and the Charles Taz Russells, and everybody else, the Mary Baker, Eddie Patterson, Glover Fry technique. They've tried it all, and they're empty. And now they're ready for Jesus. And you know the incredible thing? Is he's still there, he's still waiting, and he's still willing. And now he's ready to reveal himself to you as you deliberately seek him. And you know the great thing about coming to that point? I remember coming to that point. I remember going through that exact process. I was getting the gospel from all angles. And I liked it all except the part about the sin. So I tried every other path I could find. And when I was all done and more empty and more corrupted and more frustrated than ever, I came to Christ. And you know what I found out? That he was only after my long search, only a prayer away. Only a prayer away. In Romans 10, 9 and 11, Paul writes and he says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, basically in victory over sin on your behalf, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That's the promise of God. Whoever, whoever you are, however long your search has been, however many paths you've tried, now you're empty, now you're more frustrated because now you know all the ways you tried didn't work and now you're believing that maybe he is the way after all and now you're desperate. I say to you, He's ready to welcome you. Give your life to Him today, and you will find that to be true. He will not let you down. He will never shame you by turning you away. He'll deliver you from your shame. So He reveals Himself to those who are deliberately seeking Him. We see it with Andrew, John, Peter, and these men in this passage. It's wonderful to see it. But there's something else here. Now we come around to Philip. We see that he reveals himself to those who are not deliberately seeking him. Now what I want you to realize here is this. Here is the magnitude of God and his love. You see, Jesus Christ is not limited to one method of drawing people unto himself. He doesn't just reveal himself to the desperate. He doesn't just reveal himself to the deliberate. But he also reveals himself to those that are not deliberately seeking him. And in doing so, magnifies his grace and love. John 1.43 says, The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip. You see that? He deliberately went out and sought Philip. Now, there are two ways of finding something. One way is to just casually be going along and stumble over it. Oh, look at this thing I found. That is one way. There's another way of finding something, and that is when you're out deliberately searching for it. Jesus found Philip. He went deliberately searching for him. Now, already these other guys have come looking for Jesus. But now he says, you know, I'm going to go up to Galilee. And on his mind and his heart is there's a man out there 
I want. I want him to walk with me. I want him to talk with me. I want him to know me. And I want to completely change his life once and for all and forever. And I'm going to go find him today. And so on the way, he finds Philip. He doesn't just bump into him on the short journey to Cana of Galilee. What I want you to notice is this. Philip was not out searching for Jesus. When we find Andrew and John, and Jesus senses the two men behind him, they are deliberately looking for him. But when Jesus encounters Philip, Philip is not searching for Jesus. Jesus is searching for him. And as he came to Philip's life, he came suddenly. He came suddenly and he came completely and he drew Philip to himself. And this is the way that he works sometimes. Sometimes he suddenly and personally confronts and converts people very quickly. And he's able to do that with his awesome power. And I want to encourage those of you that have come to a place of hopelessness. Some of you have people you care about and they're out in a place where no one's witnessing to them. They don't ever go to church. There's no one to take them to church. There's no relative nearby that even cares about them, that knows Christ. And you're saying, oh God, how could you ever reach them? Well, he's fully able. Know that. And know that just as he went searching for Philip personally, he can go searching for your loved one in response to your prayers. And you're saying, oh, but God, time's going by. I don't know if you could ever reach them. He can reach them suddenly and personally and convert them and draw them unto himself. You say, I don't know how he could ever do that. Let me ask you a question. How was Paul the Apostle converted? Was he out deliberately seeking Jesus? Was he reading material on how to be saved? No, you see, this man knew all about Jesus. This man was bent on destroying Jesus and his movement. This man was no more seeking Christ, probably you could say, than the devil was. Because this man was doing the work of the devil, even killing Christians. And there he goes off on the road to Damascus. Somewhere between leaving town and going to Damascus, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, appears to him, confronts him, blinds him with his glory, and leaves him that way for three days. And when he comes out of the whole thing, he is a converted man. And he who was the champion to destroy Christianity is suddenly the champion to advance it. And it happened so quickly. And that is because the Lord is not confined to this way or that way in drawing people unto himself. Sometimes he saves them quickly and suddenly. And you know what that is? It is a manifestation of his love. I love it when you're reading through the book of Matthew and you come to the call of Matthew. And Matthew was, I don't know if you know the background on Matthew, but as a tax collector, he was basically working for the Romans, basically a uh, traitor to his people because he made his living through the excess that he gained by cheating his own people. He was, in fact, one of the worst people in town. He was in a special category of tax collector, extortioner, cheaters, known as a little moques. And the little moques, Matthew, was this most sinful, in the eyes of the people, evil man in town. And one day Jesus is walking through town and just to put his glory on display, he stops, he turns to Matthew and he says, You, come on, you come and follow me. 
Now, he's not saying, let's all go down to the park together and have a picnic. Let's have lunch together. Let's do lunch, Matthew. Why don't you join the guys and myself? No. He's saying, you leave your money, leave your cheating, leave your wealth, leave your life. Come and find a new one with me. He did it suddenly. And Matthew's life was permanently changed. This is the aggressive love of God and salvation. You see a parallel of it? in the physical healings of Jesus. Have you ever thought about it? Jesus sweeps through Palestine, healing the blind, raising the dead, casting demons out of the possessed. And sometimes he does it in response to the afflicted people coming up to him with the longing hearts and the searching eyes that are begging him to heal them. You know, you hear the blind men crying out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, heal me! But other times, there's individuals, they're just out there. And Jesus searches them out in the knowledge that he had, knowing all things, being God. He searches them out. Why? To manifest his love to them. I love to contemplate the account in John 5, and we'll get to it, where the man is laying there with the great multitude at the pool of Bethesda. And here is the man waiting, and occasionally an angel would come and stir up the waters, and the first guy to jump in the water after the angel was there got healed. And this man's been laying there. He had an infirmity for 38 years. Jesus comes along and searches this man out. This is the searching love of God. And he begins to talk to the man. He sees him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time. Jesus knew this. And he said to him, Do you want to be made well? And the man said, Oh, sir, I do. I've been laying here. But you see, my condition is so bad that I always lose the race to the water after the angel's been there. And by now, I've been here so long, I can't even move. I need to be picked up and carried. And in the hustle and bustle, I'm always just left where I am. But you see, Jesus sought that man out with the express intention of manifesting his love to him and he says to that man on the spot, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man took up his bed and he walked. You see, that's a wonderful parallel of Jesus seeking out those that are even unable to seek him in their own confines of their sinfulness and thinking, but he comes and reveals himself to them and reveals his love. And this is what he does. So don't lose heart. Continue to pray for those that seem beyond reach and have no word coming to them. And let the Lord do His work. Isaiah 6, 65, 1. I love this. God says, I was sought by those who did not ask for me, and I was found by those who did not seek for me. I said, here am I. Here am I. Can you imagine? God going out and saying, here I am, here I am. Person going through life, Apostle Paul, the killer Saul. He's going down the Damascus road. All of a sudden, the heavens open up. Jesus is looking down at him. He's saying, here I am. You're trying to wipe out my entire movement. Here I am. Take a look at me. You're killing my people. Here I am. They're all going to raise from the dead and live forever with me. Here I am. And the next thing you know, he has no alternative. He's so thoroughly convinced so quickly. And he goes on to walk with God in his conversion. And that is why in Philippians 3.12, he wrote, Not that I have already attained. He never forgot that it was Jesus who laid hold of him. He didn't go seeking Jesus. Jesus came and found him. 
Philippians 3.12, he says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also has laid hold of me. He took hold of my life with a purpose. He took hold of my life with an intention. He took hold of my life with a plan, and it was Him who did it. And now I live my life seeking to conform to that plan and that purpose for which He came and took hold of me. Jesus Himself said it in Luke 19.10. He said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That is why I came. That is why when you go to John 1.43 and you read the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and He found Philip. He was doing exactly what He came to do to seek and to save the lost. So our Lord's method in drawing men unto Himself. Let's go a little farther with this and talk about our Lord's invitation in drawing men unto Himself. John 1.43 The following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and He found Philip and said to him, notice these words, follow me. I don't know what those words do to you. You know, you can read them over the years, and sometimes repetition makes us numb to certain things. I always pray as I'm studying this scripture, because I do it every day of my life, God, don't let me become numb to the truth that is before me. Don't let the familiarity with your truth cause me to overlook it and not gain fresh richness from it. I don't know if anything even happens to you anymore when you read these words of the Master to this man that he is calling, come and follow me. What does that do to you? What do you think of? He found Philip and he said to him, follow me. You know, at first glance it might just seem like he's saying, hey, you know, I'm going up to Galilee. You want to come? Me and some of the guys, we're going to walk on up. Why don't you come with us? That's what it seems like at first glance. But the longer you look at it, follow me, the more you begin to realize. He's really saying this, Philip, I came and I found you for a reason. Philip, I want to walk with you. I want to walk with you every day. Philip, I want to walk with you every day for the rest of your life. Philip, I want you to safely follow me through this life and all the way into the next life. I want you to follow me, Philip, because where we're going, it's going to take forever. Philip, come and follow me. Because what he's saying is this, I want to be your guide. I want to be your guide through life. Have you ever thought about how great your need is for a guide in life? Consider the dangers of life. Consider the crises of life that are without number and usually often come with no warning whatsoever. Consider all of the different trials you will go through. Consider how easy it is to lose your way in life. Have any of you lost your way in life? Been going along through life and the next thing you know you're so far out into something you don't even know how you got there. And then the cry of your heart that preoccupies you for days and weeks and sometimes months is, how do I get out of this place into which I have come? You've gotten lost into something. So easy to make the wrong decisions that affect you for years. So easy to have children as a parent and not raise them properly because you don't have the guidance that you need. So easy to go through life lonely and to look for a mate and to make the wrong choice 
and to reap the sad, tragic, heart-rending results because you lost your way. Oh, we need a guide. We need a guide through life. And there are so many battles to be fought, aren't they? Jesus comes along to Philip. He finds him. He says, I want you to follow me. I want to be your guide. Oh, there's so much involved in that in terms of discipleship. But just in terms of following as a guide, let me suggest a few thoughts to you just briefly that really pop out to me as I think about this. You realize that all wise travelers in life seek a guide. How many of you here have seen the movie In Search of Noah's Ark? You watch the movie and think, you know, I want to go there. I want to find the ark. I'm going to go there. Listen, if you were ever to embark on such an expedition, if you were truly wise, you wouldn't even think of doing it without a guide, right? You, the guide will guide you through because that's what a guide does. Soldiers go off to battle and they constantly keep their eye on the commander because they realize it's life and death. And so there's just a few things that pop out to me about Jesus being our guide. And one is that He is our captain. He is our captain all the way through life. He takes us through our battles. He sees us through. In Hebrews 2.10 says, For it was fitting for Him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And the word captain here, carries the idea of a pioneer who blazes a trail for others to follow. The little Greek word is archegos, and the archegos, as it was used in the writer's time, the writer of the Hebrews, the archegos never stood at the rear giving orders. He was always out in front leading and setting the example. That's it. Jesus comes to Philip. He finds him. He says, I want you to follow me. Let me be your captain. Let me be your trailblazer through life. I'll go out in front of you. I won't just bark out orders at you, but I'll go ahead of you in the life that I'm calling you to live, and you can safely follow me. And then he is our guide as our shepherd. This means so much to me. I don't know how much you realize your own helplessness by now as a Christian, or if you're not a Christian and you're contemplating Christ. The God I serve is my shepherd. Jesus is my shepherd. In so many ways he leads me that I might follow. In first Peter chapter two verse twenty five, Peter says, You were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. One of the things that the shepherd does is he protects the sheep from enemies. And there are so many enemies in the Christian life demons, the devil himself, the world. And I'm so thankful. When I began my Christian journey and Jesus said to me to follow him, I'm so thankful that he was making a commitment to me, the same commitment that he made to Philip, that he would lead me and he would guide me and he would work as my shepherd on my behalf. And I've gotten involved in snares and false doctrines along the way. And I can look back now and see how the good shepherd was there to fight off the wolves that were besetting me. The shepherd will often fight, even at the possible price of his own life. The wolf and the cougar, David said, I have fought a lion and a bear. And he was a young man, he was a shepherd. Often in those days, if you met a shepherd, you would find that he was covered with scars all over his body, scars that he had gained by saving the life of the sheep, by fighting on their behalf. The Bible says that when we get to heaven, we will see Jesus 
We will look on him who was pierced. We will see his scars. He will carry his scars. The man Jesus in heaven will carry the scars that he gained on our behalf as he fought for us at the cross and even died for us that we might be liberated and saved as his sheep. This is the shepherd that I follow and he has saved me. You know, one of the things I like in the midst of Psalm 23 is where David says, as he's contemplating the Lord as a shepherd, he says he prepares a table for me in the midst of my enemies. The farther I go in the Christian life, the more I realize if I'm going to stay committed to the Bible, I'm going to have enemies. I'm going to have attacks. The Bible says we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. And the devil's organized. That whole thing there in Ephesians speaks of organized troops that come against us and it isn't really ultimately flesh and blood we're fighting. He has emissaries, he has people that follow him that do his bidding and they come into our life. And some of those things are the hardest things in life to deal with. If you read 2 Corinthians, you find an agonizing writer, Paul the Apostle, and the most agonizing thing that is there is these people in the church who were undermining all the work that he had done in founding that church, undermining the foundation he had laid in the lives of these people. And it's no wonder that he writes in that context that a messenger of Satan has come to buffet me. I'm convinced, after thinking it was watering eyes, after thinking it was some kind of a disease, after thinking it was this or that or the other thing over the years, I'm convinced now the messenger of Satan to buffet him was the individual human beings in that church that were driven passionately by the devil to undermine all the work that he was doing there. And he sought the Lord three times to take it away. And God said, no. What a disturbing answer. And he said, no. And the reason is because you've been given so many revelations. Something must keep you humble. So because of the revelations, lest he would be exalted, the messenger of Satan, to buffet him, to keep him humble. So you'll notice all throughout Paul's ministry, there were these human beings driven by the enemy to buffet him. And yet it was God, his good shepherd, that got him through. And in the midst of his enemies, there's this table prepared where he feasts on the goodness of God, the richness of God, and he's strengthened at the feast to go on in the battle and carry on and keep fighting and live on the cutting edge and keep leading people to Jesus Christ no matter how bad it got. And he did it all the way until they finally locked him up in a dungeon and kept him there until they took him out to the highway and an axe flashed in the sun and severed his head from his body. And I thank God that as I have come to follow, as I need to follow, as I need a guide, that my guide is to me, a shepherd. He prepares a table for me and he strengthens me. And I keep going because of the love and the grace and the sustenance and the nurturing of Jesus Christ, and so do you. And it is a great thing. Our captain, our shepherd, follow me. Follow me, and what else? Follow me, well, I will be your counselor. How many know the verse? You see it on Christmas cards every year. Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, what is it? Counselor. Oh, how I thank God as I move through this life, I have a captain. 
I have a shepherd and I have a counselor. My counselor comes to me in my time of need. And he comes through the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will send you the Holy Spirit and he will carry on the ministry I've had with you. He said that to his disciples. When I'm gone, he'll come and he will lead you into all truth. He will be your counselor. He will be your guide. And how I thank God that in my time of need, I have a counselor. When I say to the Lord, Lord, thus and thus is bothering me. Oh, God, help me minister to me. I do not expect that he's going to say, all right, step one. Now listen up. Let me see that ear. Turn it toward me. I expect to get into the word which he has so preciously preserved for me and pour over it and pray over it and that he's going to speak to me from it. And I expect that he's going to put impressions on my heart that will stay there and be confirmed by the word. I expect that I'll be in a message, in a sermon, he'll confirm further. Until as I seek him and wait upon him, it is good that a man waits on the Lord, he will give me the counsel that I need. Be careful of these dialogues where men the Lord said. That doesn't mean that sometimes he doesn't put such a clear impression on your heart that you just know what it means. I love when Amy Carmichael went out to the mission field and never came back, ended up in India. The thing that really got Amy to go was she was pouring over the scriptures and she read these words. It was old King James, go ye. Just blasted right off the page into her heart. Go ye. There's my answer. Even in King James, make it official. And she went to the mission field on go ye. But she had been waiting and praying on God and seeking counsel, you see. And when she read the go ye and God confirmed, this is me, this is my word and it's for you. See, sometimes it's so clear. But don't think God's going to speak to you audibly, lower down a little speaker. But know that he will be your counselor. And thank God that you're not left without counsel in this world. You need to hear the words he said to Philip, follow me and let him lead you. Let him be your captain. Let him be your shepherd. Let him be your counselor. He is a wonderful counselor. So much we could say on that. Read the scriptures. Here's just a fourth thought. Our friend. Our friend. I don't know about you, but before I came to Christ, I was so lonely. I was so desperately lonely. You know the feeling surrounded by friends and you're lonely? You can even be with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or even be married and be lonely. Well, I remember being so very lonely, totally depressed and hopeless in life, and thinking if I only had a true friend who knew me deeply and once knowing me would continue to love me deeply, now that would be something. And I came to know Christ. Someone said to me, if you'll come to Jesus, he'll be your best friend and he'll never leave you or forsake you. He's promised it. Well, I took that promise and I clung to it. And the day I came to Christ, I said, I, I desperately need a friend, Lord, and I want you to be my friend. And someone told me, you'll be my friend and never leave me or forsake me. I'll tell you, I haven't been lonely since. That isn't to say that you have your times of depression and hardship and all of that, but that's different. In the middle of that, Jesus is with me, and He has never left me or forsaken me. And even in the times of struggle, when you struggle with your spouse and the hardships of marriage and all of that, He's with you. And that is why Christian marriages can be different, because He's there as your friend, and you can talk to Him, 
And you don't have to run down the street and tell all these people in the outer circle of your life, do you know what my spouse is like really? No, you can go to God and you say, God, you know what my spouse is like already. God is there as your friend. One of the most precious verses in the Bible to me is John 15, 15, where Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants to his disciples, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You see, they were his friends. And we are friends with Christ. If you don't know Christ, you know loneliness. It's time for you to know Him and know what a real friend is all about and what it's all about to not be lonely anymore. If you'll come to Him, He will become your closest friend. So when Jesus says, follow me to Philip, it was with the commitment and the intention to follow through with all these things on His behalf. And I thank the Lord that as we follow Him, He is true. So we've seen our Lord's method in drawing men unto Himself, our Lord's invitation in drawing men unto Himself. One last thing, and that is our Lord's choice in drawing men unto Himself. Here's how it works out. The Lord is expanding His kingdom all the time. And He has been doing that from the day in which we found Him here, calling Philip and the other men to begin the work. And He says in John 1.43, Philip, follow me. And what he does is he saves individuals with the intention of assigning them to certain responsibilities in the kingdom of God. Do you know that you have a responsibility in the kingdom of God? Do you know that you have a certain thing, that some certain things God wants you to do? He chooses individuals for certain types of service. And what he does, I want you to see here in the call of Philip, he found Philip. He went and looked for Philip and he chose him for a certain type of service. He chooses ordinary people. That's what I want you to see. Absolutely ordinary people. You see, our society is searching for qualified individuals. Would you agree that's true? If you want to get on a team, you have to qualify. You see, our society is looking for qualified people. But it's amazing to me that our Savior is searching for unqualified people. He calls Philip. We often think of the apostles as extraordinary men, don't we? Like they're stained glass saints or something with no faults, no errors in their life. Like they are not beset by any of the problems and failures that the rest of humanity goes through. But listen, these men were just like us. They were just like us. And you see this with Philip. God wants to advance his kingdom. Now think of it. He's a holy God. He's a loving God. He's a gracious God. He wants to expand his kingdom. But the problem is... The only thing found on planet Earth is a fallen humanity. So if he's going to expand his kingdom, he will have to save man out of that humanity to expand it. And even still, they're going to battle with sin, right? So when you come to analyze who is qualified to expand the kingdom of God, the answer is nobody. Nobody. So what God has chosen to do and what he is left with doing is to take people that don't qualify. Think of it, to take unqualified men and women and send them forth to do the impossible. The impossible, which is to advance his kingdom, to see lives changed, to see people saved. So you look at the case of Philip, and that is exactly what you see, and I love it. Let me show you just a few things from Philip's life, and then we'll be done. 
You look at Philip and you realize Jesus chose here an ordinary person. You know what he did with him? He made him a small group leader in his fellowship. How many people were in the immediate fellowship of Jesus Christ? Do you know the number? The twelve, they're called. In his immediate fellowship, he had twelve. Those twelve were broken up into small groups. Groups of four. And each group had a leader. We know that because every time you find these lists of these groups, the same person is always listed as the first name. Peter was the leader of the first group. The leader of the second group was Philip. So he was made the leader of a small group by Jesus Christ. Always mentioned at the beginning of the second group, you have Philip and you have Bartholomew, who is Nathaniel, and you have Thomas and Matthew. So he's a small group leader. That's one of the responsibilities he was given. You say, well, he must have been a great man of faith to be given the responsibility of being a small group leader with the most crucial group of men ever to be assembled on earth, with the most important teacher and master ever to lead a team anywhere. Man, he must have been incredible, Philip. Well, I want to tell you this, he was not a man of great faith. See, every disciple has area of responsibility. Judas on the team, you know, was in charge of the money. As they moved around, people had to be in charge of things. It seems that Philip was also in charge of the food. So as they moved around, someone would have to care about where they're going to camp, where they're good, what they're going to eat, where we're going to buy the food, and how is it going to be rationed out because we're going to travel from here to there. It seems that Philip was in charge of the food. And what happens then is that Jesus wants to test his faith in his own particular area of ministry. So you turn in your Bible, could you, to John chapter 6 to verse 5? And here is a test to see if he is a man of great faith. And he fails it. In John 6, 5, Jesus has been out with the 5,000 men, and he's been out there teaching, and he lifts up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to what? Test him. For he himself knew exactly what he was going to do. Now, Philip had seen Jesus recently turn the water into wine at Cana. Philip had been with Jesus all day with 5,000 men plus women and children, probably somewhere around 30,000 people, among whom he has been healing diseases, performing miracles. So having seen miracles enough already... When his own particular test of faith comes, he should have been ready, sharp, a man of faith in action. Philip, what should we do to feed all of these people? You would assume he would say, well, what did you do to make the water into wine? And how did you heal all these people? Go ahead and do, do what you always do. I want to see it. I want to see how it happens. It's going to be good, I know. Go ahead, Lord. Instead, he's got it all figured out. And in verse 7, Philip answers, said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that everyone may have even a little. 200 denarii. He's already got a figure. You see, the fact that he has an instant answer proves that he was probably in charge of the food. He had already analyzed it, figured it out, calculated that 200 denarii would not be enough to feed the crowd. The figure was either an amount he got from looking at the crowd or an amount they had available to spend on food. The reason 200 denarii wouldn't be enough is because one denarius was a day's wage. And one denarius bought 36 barley biscuits 
which were the size of a man's hand and about inch and a half thick. So when Jesus is testing Philip, and he asks him how they're going to feed the crowd, get this, Philip, with his answer, had already figured out that 7,200 barley biscuits would not be enough to go around, and there was just simply no way to do it. He fails the test. Why? Because Jesus has displayed his power. He wants faith back. And he says, I've got it all worked out. It can't be done. Let's get out of here. And Jesus had one of the greatest events planned so far in the history of his ministry to feed these people. He failed the test. He was not a man of great faith. Further, his vision for evangelism was too narrow. Remember when the Greeks came and they wanted to see Jesus in John 12, 20? They came and they wanted to be brought to Jesus, and he hesitates. The Bible says they came to Philip, and they said, Sir, we would see Jesus. These Greeks, you would think he'd say, Fine, I'll take you to him right now. I know him. Instead, he goes and he finds Andrew. He hesitates, and then Andrew takes them with Philip to Jesus. His vision for evangelism was too narrow. Yes, save some Jews. I'll tell my friend Nathaniel. Greeks, I don't know. See, sometimes our vision for evangelism is too narrow. If you're like that, take heart. You can still be used. God can still work with you. And a third thought is that he was slow to process and apply the light that had been given him. When it's coming down to the end in John 14, Philip comes to the Lord and he says, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough. Jesus turns to him. He says, have I been all this time with you? And you have not known me, Philip? And he says, Do you believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? How can you say, Show us the Father? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Do you understand that with all the light, all the revelation, he was slow to process it and apply it? Here is a man who is on the inside with Jesus in terms of leadership. He is one of the crucial people to advance the kingdom. And he is not a man of great faith, and he has a vision for evangelism of all things that is too narrow, and he is slow to process and apply the light that has been given to him. This should be very encouraging to you. It is so encouraging to me. Because this man was one of the top 12 men that worked with Jesus Christ. And I find this man to be so unqualified from worldly terms, but yet a man who was transformed as he was saved by Jesus. And over a period of time, the Lord was able to work through his failures and inadequacies and change him over a period of time to make him a mighty man of God. And he wants to do that with every one of us. We've seen how Philip was in the beginning. You want to know how he ended up? Tradition tells us that Philip ended up dying as a martyr. And because he would not deny the one who had called him when he was a worthless sinner and saved him and transformed him and used him because he would not deny Christ, they took him and they stripped him naked and they hung him upside down by his feet and then they pierced his ankles and they cut him in his thighs so that he would slowly bleed to death as he hung upside down. And yet he wouldn't recant and turn from Christ. He had only one request to these people, that his dead body would not be wrapped in linen like the body of his Lord because he felt he was not 
worthy or qualified for that. You see, Jesus takes unqualified people and he calls them unto himself. And he says, if you'll follow me, I'll lead you. I promise. I'll be your captain. I'll be your friend in a loveless world. I'll give you counsel in a world God mad that doesn't know right from wrong. And I'll be your shepherd. I'll take you to the still waters and I'll lead you to the green pastures. And I promise you this. When it comes your time to die, I'll be with you in the valley of the shadow of death. And then I'm going to take you to the house of the Lord where you're going to live with me forever. Follow me and I'll give you safe passage all the way through from here through eternity. This is the God I serve. This is the Savior I know. Do you know him? He loves you so much. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Oh, Jesus, thank you so much for your love to us. Thank you, Lord, that you reveal yourself to men and women who will come and seek you. And thank you, Lord, that there are those times even when you just surprise individuals and come and suddenly reveal yourself and your glory and your love and convert them so quickly and so dramatically and then send them out to convert others. Lord, I pray for those who've been listening who do not know you, that you would so reveal yourself to them in this hour, that there would be no other alternative rather than to surrender to you and to come to know you personally. And Lord, for those of us that already know you, may these words, follow me, become alive again to us. And may we go from this time and this place and this message and do just that and know you to be true as our great guide in life. And we will give you all the glory for you are so worthy. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.